Welcome to this edition of Toby Hodoke's Who's Round. It's the second part of our Stephen Gallagher interview where we pick up where we left off with him talking about making breakthroughs as a writer. And then I sold the TV rights to Chimera, that very first novel. And we're, we're getting like a decade on now, and I'd, I'd adapted it for, for radio in the meantime. And a guy called Simon Moorhead, who um, was a BBC location manager at the time, who had ambitions of being a producer, um, came out of, uh, of nowhere and said, are the rights available? You know, I'd, I'd really like to uh, try and run with these. And the story behind it was, was that he'd, he'd long harboured an ambition of being a producer and he'd read the book when it first came out and loved it and shown it to his wife and his wife had said, if ever you want to make a break and be a producer and you want to option this, I'll back you. you know, I'll, I'll support you in that. So much as I was being supported by my missus, he was being supported by his. And he took a six-month option on, uh, on Chimera with his own money, his own savings. I mean... I didn't demand a lot of money off him because we were both kind of doing it for the same kind of motives. But, you know, it sealed the deal and professionalised it. And he took it out there. And just as I'd been turned down by every company that I ever took it to, he got turned down by every company that he took it to, apart from Zenith, who really liked it. And I remember getting an... uh, it wasn't an email at, at that time. It was uh, it was a phone call saying, look, you know, the, the option's about to run out. Would you mind awfully if I sold it on to Zenith because they'd like to have a run with it and Zenith at the time was this was the company that produced Inspector Morse and you know a whole bunch of prestige programming in uh, in that period and the the main people that I dealt with there were Archie Tate and Scott Meek who remain friends to this day and they paid me to write a script a first episode and a breakdown of all the other scripts and they took those out that script and, and breakdown out around all the broadcasters in on the ITV network and the BBC, every single one of whom said no. Um, in the meantime, they also bought Valley of Lights for, um, for, for a feature, which yet to be made, but that's a whole other story. Um, and then uh, the weirdest thing happened. We got a call from Anglia TV saying, is Chimera still available? And the story behind that was that Anglia TV being one of the kind of second division companies on the ITV network. The first division companies were like Granada, Thames, London Weekend, Yorkshire, ATV. They were the ones who got the lion's share of the, the airtime and did the lion's share of the programming. And then you had companies like Anglia, Tyne Tees, um, Harlech, who all contributed drama and network programming, but not to anything like the same level. So they always felt they had something to prove, when they got slots allocated at the, the annual kind of carve-up of, uh, of, of airtime, they clung to those slots tenaciously and, and gave them up very, very reluctantly, if at all. What then happened was that one of these slots, it was a four-hour drama slot, um, had fallen open because Anglia was supposedly doing a co-production with a Belgian producer of a European thriller, and the Belgian co-producer had pulled out. And the whole thing was supposed to be shot in Belgium and and, locations in Brussels. They'd ask themselves, could we do it in Norwich? And decided, no, we couldn't do it in Norwich. And so what they'd done is they'd looked at the recent stuff that they'd read and realised, well, Chimera is four hours. 
and they came back to us and said, can you have it done by August? <laughs> so we had an incredibly short timetable, which I've got to say is my preferred way of working. My, my ideal gig, you know, if I'm, if I'm working on a show, is someone who's got the money, they've not got a script, but they've got a deadline. And this is how Crusoe came about years later. But, um, but at the time, we were thrown in at the deep end. Lawrence Gordon-Clark was brought in as producer. Lawrence, of course, having done the ghost stories for Christmas and had a terrific kind of track record in that kind of supernatural, outre, off-the-wall genre kind of, of, of show. And we went to it, and uh, I later found out, because Archie is, is teaching at the London Film School now, and I went down and did, uh, did a talk there a while back. And I didn't realise, but Archie said that one of... Or kindly said that one of the, uh, the reasons for, uh, for the show coming together the way that it did is because I was so hands-on behind the scenes. Because they sent me down to Image Animation Workshop to liaise with the creature designers on the building and the, the design of the creature. And I wish we'd had longer on that because I would have liked to have finessed it more and got closer to what we'd originally set out to talk about. But we got the job done. And, um, and Archie kind of credits me for, uh, for, you know, for, for a contribution there. Now, I credit that show for letting me be as hands-on as it did because I learned so much of, of what goes on behind the scenes there. And from that point on, I was kind of spoiled because I expected always to be more involved than, than your average writer is. I, I remember um, I was doing Murder Rooms, David Pirry's series for BBC Films, and I went down for, for the shoot of that, and we were shooting at um, the, old, um, the old American University, um, which provided us with a wealth of Victorian interiors and exteriors. And there was some point where, oh, that's it, I got my daughter a part in it as well, and, uh, and that kind of shortened the, um, the, the audition process, because... What I didn't realise when I put her up for it is it's really tricky to get child actors. That's why they always go to the same few stage schools, because the legal process is streamlined if you go there. But, you know, I, I provided... I threw my kid in as fodder for the, uh, for the casting, and I turned up, and, and I was there on set, and I was there if they ever needed any, any lines doing. And at one point, I was standing outside the set handing props to the, first, to the second assistant who was then handing them to the actors as they went in and he turned to me and said how much are they paying you? he says because they're getting bloody good value out of you <laughs> <laughs> but I just expected from you know I, I never regarded myself just as a writer I was always a showmaker you know back in those early hands on days at independent radio we were all there mucking in on the floor and I always kind of felt excluded or ousted if I wasn't doing that on any production that, that I did subsequently well, um, Nigel Neal apparently threw some of the stones that fly about in Quatermass in the pit, so you're just picking up his gauntlet, I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. You see, I think, I mean, Nigel has, um, has or had a reputation of being a bit of a curmudgeon over his scripts, and, you know, the, the famous thing of his, um, his feelings about Brian Donlevy um, taking over the, uh, the role and, uh, and being, in his view, completely unsuited to it. Well, I can kind of see where... It, I can more than see where he's coming from. But on the other hand, I don't think Don Levy does a terrible job. It's just that the job that he does is obviously not the job that was in Neil's head. Um, what I've since learned is that maybe the job that's in your head is not necessarily the thing you want to go on screen anyway. Maybe you do want to collaborate with other people and maybe you do want other talents coming in there because going over to the book world again, some of the least successful book sales I've had have been the ones where I've had the most input into the covers. Which leaves me thinking, am I better off just staying out of that and letting people who know what they're doing 
get stuck into that. But of course, you know, I have a friend, Chris Moore, who is a, a book illustrator, who um, gets the book briefs, and I've seen fantastic concepts get watered down and boiled down by the addition of unnecessary detail or irrelevant detail which the author obviously thinks is absolutely crucial to the selling of the book and I look at it and I think yeah, you know you would have been better if you'd left it alone and I look at my younger self and think would it have been better if I'd left things alone then maybe not. What about the content of a book because I'm very interested I think you particularly um, unlike most Doctor Who script writers, and certainly any that I've talked to, you know, you have straddled prose and screen, and you've directed, and, you know, and as you say now, sort of the showrunner element as well. But in terms of, of writing a, a book, uh, is, is a good editor like a good television producer in the sense that, you know, does it metamorphose when you send it in and they send you stuff back and you, you write to order for them, or are you, or are you more authorial? literally as a, as a book writer I try not to be up myself but I mean I've, I've always been lightly edited in, um, in novels and I've always had good editors who have that trick of pointing to something that you were maybe in your heart doubtful about <laughs> but thought it was probably okay so you put it out there to see if it's okay and they kind of tell you well it's not okay at which point you then address it as you should have in the first place Latterly, um, I have a, a really good agent in New York, Howard Moorheim, who is my first reader on novels. And by the time Howard has seen it and pointed out the flaws that I've been trying to get away with, by the time it goes out, it's usually pretty well bomb-proof. Yeah, and, and there's not a lot for the publisher's editor necessarily to do. And if you get a publisher's editor who is hugely hands-on when they don't need to be, then that's always a warning sign to me. Um, and that's only ever happened maybe twice in my entire career. But having said that, it's a long career and I have moved through quite a, quite a number of editors. So it's quite likely that, uh, that you know, you're going to have the odd not-so-great experience every now and again. But each time, um, that experience did not result in a bad book, in my opinion. Well, let's take what you know now then and look, and look because we've only touched on Terminus and um, funny, you've been through a lot of editors. Both of your Doctor Who directors never worked on the show before or since, so I don't know. <laughs> um, but ter Terminus was another production. I mean, Peter Davison recalls they had to shoot bits of it literally live in a sense because they, it was another production that was very up against mm. it. Looking at, knowing what you know now about television production... Um, Looking back at Doctor Who as it was being made, and Peter Davison was the Doctor, John Nathan Turner was the producer, mm. and they were making Terminus. What is what are you as a, as, a, as somebody that knows their stuff? What 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 do you glean from what you saw and what you understand of that now? Most of the stuff I now know is film-based television. So this was kind of as we were moving towards the end of studio-based television. There's almost apart from the soaps. There's almost no studio-based drama being made anymore. Any, uh, any major series or anything else is all made on film, single camera. Um, although, although what now happens is you have an A and a B camera and then you, you get double, double bubble out of every scene that you shoot. But back then, the, uh, the notion of staging and shooting and just the sheer practicalities of getting something in the can I think was kind of fairly miraculous. Um, especially on the on the timetables that they were given to do it, and I would hate to actually enter into that world and try and make drama on that basis again. And I have the hugest respect for the people who were able to do it back then. Um, 
the timetables for both Warriors Gate and Terminus were impossible. I think the timetable for Terminus was made more impossible by external factors, uh, some of which I was aware of, most of which I was unaware of. I just turned up, you know, as the happy sort of grinning writer watching his stuff getting made. Um, sat in the box, sat in the booth and you know, witnessed it all happening. 90% of what was going on was was kind of faffing and wandering and then you get 10% of magic would go into the camera and wow, you know, you kept that as best it could and if it wasn't perfect, you kept it anyway because you had to move on to the next it's a completely different kind of production scenario to uh, to the way that you know, Doctor Who or any other show is made now uh, I imagine that Who is, is kind of single digital camera now, and maybe, you know, A and B cameras and of course they have access to um, the most... I say they have access to the most modern contemporary digital effects now, but a lot of it is still latex and, uh, and fantastic makeup effects. And some of the state-of-the-art stuff that's being done in TV at the moment is being done on Doctor Who. I mean, you look at an American show like Grimm, where they have monsters in every episode, and they're not a patch on Doctor Who monsters now. And what about your... Um, you've got a different script editor when, with Terminus than Eric Sayward had come on board. Um, Dif- uh, different script editors um, lead to different creative relationships? I suppose so, yeah. I mean, I, my, my, my relationship with Chris was kind of that of, you know, the first-time writer with the encouraging script editor, whereas uh, with Eric, you know, Eric assumed that I was a professional and, um, and treated me with, you know, no greater enthusiasm than, than he treated anyone else I'm sure. Also he was a writer on the show he did one of the, uh, you know, the, the best shows of, uh, of that season I think which was Earthshock which I was terrifically impressed by um, and you know, I had to follow that with Terminus now Terminus was not hugely fan popular um, and the difference between that and Warrior's Gate is that it remains not hugely <laughs> fan popular <laughs> although I have to say every now and again um, I was at a convention in Jersey, science fiction convention in Jersey, and I was in the bar, and this was not long after Terminus had gone out, and I just overheard a conversation in which somebody was saying, I've just seen the best piece of horror I've ever seen on British TV, and it was a Doctor Who, it was called Terminus. Yeah. And I didn't, I didn't interrupt, I didn't introduce myself, I just took that away. And just a few weeks ago, um, there is um, a Twitter feed, Mystery Brit Exec, who has now outed herself as Rachel Pryor, who's, um, who's a, a development executive in British film. And it was around Halloween, and people were listing um, their kind of most influential horror viewing experiences. And I'd started following her the moment she, she kind of went on, because it was obvious that she had interesting stuff to say, so we followed each other from the very beginning. And she listed as her... Um, as a kind of big influences from the past, various things, and in the middle of it, Doctor Who, the leprosy one, can't remember the title. How amazing. So I, I said nothing, but somebody else tweeted and says, you know that was by at Bruligan, you know, which is my Twitter handle, and she went into a kind of meltdown, which, <laughs> which I was just so pleased by. <laughs> Not that she went into meltdown, obviously, but, you know, that she remembered the thing fondly. And things like that make you think, well, just because you hear from people who didn't like it doesn't mean there's nobody out there who did. And in fact, those out there who did, if they're in the minority, and almost especially if they're in the minority, probably love it so much that they more than compensate for all those who are indifferent to it. And, well, that's my excuse, and that's what I take away from it anyway. Well, do, do you then, do you, prefer, do you prefer Terminus or Warrior's Gate in terms of the finished product then? 
It's hard to say. I mean, at the time I was more satisfied with Terminus because Terminus was a closer reflection of what I'd set out to do. But I appreciate the fact that people are blown away by, uh, by Warrior's Gate. And that's because Warrior's Gate is not all me. It's the combination of you know, all the things that went into it and the contributions of all the people who contributed to it. Whereas Terminus is mostly all me, I think, because everybody executed what I'd written in. And so maybe it's just that Warrior's Gate was taken to that extra level and in Terminus I carry more on my shoulders and that's why it maybe didn't register so much with people. But on the other hand, there are those people out there who responded to you know, the, the thread running through it and, and picked up on what I was trying to do and who love it lots. And, you know, I'll, I'll have that, I'll take that. Well, you must, as a writer, when you write a part like Bore and then see it done as Peter Benson does it. Mm. I mean, I think that's one of the, the, the great successes of, of Terminus is that character. He's, he's absolutely terrific. The nice thing is when somebody takes a character you've written and, and do it better than you imagined, you know, because you have one thing in mind, and usually the thing you have in mind is a synthesis of things that you've seen, some of it from other shows, if you're unlucky, but a fair proportion of it from life if you're doing the job right. So Bohr would have been uh, a synthesis of things that I'd seen and of genuine people that I'd known who I was trying to bring to the screen. And then along comes an actor and takes it and they bring their experience of other roles and their experience of life. And in, in the end, you've got kind of at least four sets of influences pouring into that one performance. And when it works, it works magically. You know, it's wonderful when that happens. And... Uh, Sometimes it doesn't happen and what you get is kind of by-the-numbers performance. And you do get a lot of that in TV, you know, you, and you look at some actors and you think, why are you in this job? You know, because you're obviously not feeling what you're doing. Um, and then you see others who you know, go on to great lifetime careers and you can usually spot them from the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, John Sim was in, uh, in uh, one of my chillers uh, as a very young actor at the time. He... Uh, he was not inexperienced by any means. He'd done a few things, but he was yet to go on and do you know, all the stuff, you know, Life on Mars and Intruders and all the stuff that he's done since. But you could look at him and see it was there. The annoying thing is he doesn't look any different now. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I've, be, I've bent your ear for far longer than I mm. said I would, but there's a, about four things that um, have, uh, have crossed my mind that I think would be great to finish with if, if you've still got time, if that's OK. Sure. Um, uh, well, firstly, it was... When you were talking about the, the, the influences on Warrior's Gate and you're talking about the movies that you mm. watched that influenced the visuals as well as the thematic stuff, um, and we talked before we started recording about Doctor Who that you watched as a kid and mm. Quatermass, um, you're almost the original fanboy writer, and that is becoming now more and more prevalent. You know, Russell T. Davis is unashamed that he was a Doctor Who fan as a kid, mm. Stephen Moffat too. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering if... if if there's something about television now that is being run by people like you were mm. when you were there back in the day, that maybe it's taken a while to catch up, do you think? Maybe, yeah. I mean, you know, the original fanboy writer I will take as a compliment. Um, I'm dead happy with that. What I wouldn't be so happy with is the idea of fan service, you know, where the fanboy writer comes in and says, this is for me and my other fanboys, you know, and, and fangirls indeed. Um, because then I think the whole thing becomes very, very kind of uh, inwardly turned. And I, I was looking at um, some of the online coverage of, um, you know, the, there is a new Thunderbirds coming up, 
which is partly done as CG animation and partly done as models built by Weta Workshop. And I saw some reaction online, which was like, no, 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 in capital letters all the way along. It should be puppets. Well, no, it shouldn't necessarily be puppets. Puppets were an answer to a problem at the time for, you know, doing fantasy on TV in a certain way. CG, in a way, is, you know, the puppets de nos jours. I think it's bloody great that they're using models, you know, that they're actually... Because I think miniature work is a thing in itself that has a value and that that CG can't actually duplicate. But there is somebody out there who is of the opinion, and he's not on his own, that, you know, the new Thunderbirds should be made for him because he loved the original and he loved the puppets and he wants it to be just like that. And actually, no, New Thunderbirds is being made for the 12, 13-year-olds, 10 or 11-year-olds, that he was at the time, you know. And you have to take a back seat to those kids because they're the important ones now. And this is what I always say about Doctor Who now. You know, Doctor Who's target audience is young kids of advanced intellect, you know, young kids who are maybe a bit older than their years. So... They're, they're, they're eager for, for more mature fare, but they're also still kids. And all those middle-aged and, and older guys who still enjoy the show and still love the show have to understand that we're guests at their party, you know, and we have to behave as guests. And there is a certain etiquette involved in behaving as a guest, which is that you don't shove your way to the front, you know, you don't shout down the kids... And if there's something that the kids are really enjoying and you're not, you keep your gob shut. <laughs> well, that leads me very neatly into John Nathan Turner, who was the producer of both of your stories, who, who actually, I think, the criticism that could most objectively be levelled at him, mm. because I think he got lots of brickbats mm. at various mm. points in his history, was that he started off being loved by the fans because mm. he gave them what they wanted and ended up being hated by mm. the fans... <laughs> because he gave them what he wanted. So what was your relationship with John? What are your memories of him? Because he casts a big shadow over those last ten years of Doctor Who. My relationship with him him was fine. It was great. I mean, after Warrior's Gate, you know, there were were these various issues that I was discontented and disgruntled with, and unfairly so, and I wrote him a letter outlining all of them. And, And my agent saw a copy of it, and she said, have you sent this? I said, yeah. Oh, God, she said, I wish you hadn't sent it. You know, no writer should send a letter like that. You don't do that to a producer. And I thought, well, OK, you know, I'll burn my bridges there. And he came back and he commissioned me to do Terminus. Hmm. So, you know, that was my John Nathan Turner experience. He was always great with me. Um, never, uh, you know, never a word out of place, never an action out of place, never anything that I was unhappy with. Um, no, I've got, got nothing bad to say about John at all. And what about the other John, John Lidecker? Why did... He write your books, and, and why, why did you use the pseudonym when you were writing the novels? I was writing novels of my own at the time, and the thing about the thing about novelizations, which is what the Doctor Who novel novels were, is that they take on board everything that's happened between script and screen. And in fact, the first novelization manuscript that I delivered to W. H. Allen, Christine Donegher was the uh, the editor at the time, uh, was way over length. It was based entirely on my own first draft of Warrior's Gate. And W.H. Allen really loved it. And they said, look, this is half as long again as our usual Doctor Who novelisation, but we've got permission to do an extra long book. But the word came back from the BBC, there's a lot of stuff in this that isn't in the show, uh, and we're not going to pass it. So I had to do an 11th hour cut down 
of um, of the novelisation, more or less conforming it to the structure of the uh, of the the television half hours. So all of those little bits of uh, and this was literally cut and paste because this was pre-computer. Only Chris had a computer in those days. <laughs> And this was literally cut and paste, and all the cut-out bits went into an envelope. And I have no idea where that envelope has finished up. It's gone through a couple of people. A couple of people have, over the years, have volunteered to try and reconstruct the original Doctor Who novelisation. And I'm I'm not going to name who had it last in case fans hound him, and it's not his fault if it's gone astray again. But... um, but it, it went to one guy who just hadn't didn't get the time to do it. I didn't. I don't want to do it. But because I, I bet because funny mm. enough, audio, BBC audio books mm. uh, have have just got David Fisher to write novelizations mm. of of his scripts that were novelized originally by Terence Dix, and they've done those as audio books. Mm. They bite your hand off if it was around to to release Warriors Gate, the original. I would love to see it released. I'm not entirely sure I'd love to do the work. Yes, sure. <laughs> yeah, I've been there, done that. I'm not sure I want to do it again. Um, and we haven't touched. We have. We did mention it before. We haven't touched upon the eleventh hour, but that was your sort of. That was your. your that was your Quatermass in a way. It kind of was, and that had a, a, a strange and checkered history as well. It was, at the same time, my worst experience in TV, which led to my best experience in TV, because I. Um, I pitched it to uh, Granada, as it still was. It, Granada hadn't quite turned into ITV PLC at that point. Um, and I pitched it to Andy Harris, um, or I pitched it to his development producer, Shefali Malhutra, who said, oh, you know, Andy has got twin boys. He's interested in cloning. I said, you don't want to do cloning. You know. Cloning, you know, when it's done on TV, is always done badly, and here's why it's always done badly, and here's how you would do it well. And before I knew it, I'd kind of talked myself into uh, into doing it. And you know, I pitched it as you know, Quatermass and Dem Appeal, setting right sciences uh, sciences world. And lo and behold, Andy fought for it and sold it to Nick Elliott as um, as a, a four part series. Around that time, ITV decided that they were going to do all their dramas as ninety minutes, which. From a writer's point of view, I really welcomed. I look back on it and think it was a disaster because it was like insisting every, every evening. Yeah. People have probably forgotten this, but every primetime drama on ITV on a weekday would start at 9 o'clock and would run through till 10.30 when a later news at 10 would run. And although it sounds great because it means like everything's a movie, it's like saying, well, every night of the week you've got to have a three-course meal. You know, and you've got to have the whole shebang. And sometimes you don't want a three-course meal. Sometimes you just want to sit down and and have a snack that's appropriate to the occasion. So the first spanner in the works was that the episodes had to be expanded to 90 minutes. And then, kind of creatively, Andy and his team and I went in different directions at a very late stage. I was fighting all the way through for, for probity and the... Um, you know, keeping the science correct and there was there was an element within the production team that just wanted to say well can't you just make it up and then I heard that my scripts were going out and having the dialogue rewritten by somebody else and then there were casting issues as well that I wasn't being included on and I realised that the show was going in a completely different direction to what I'd wanted and I wasn't going to be part of it so remembering the whole Warriors Gate experience where I'd bitched and moaned and ultimately regretted the bitching and moaning. Um, I thought, I will not do that this time. I will just 
walk away. So literally two weeks before um, the uh, the show began to rehearse and, and start, I cut my ties with it and uh, and had nothing to do with it. Then um, about eighteen months, two years later, and, and and the show went out, and I read the reviews, and the reviews referred to the great stories in the first two episodes, which are the ones that I wrote, let down by the clunky dialogue, which is the stuff that they'd sent out to be rewritten, which you know my first review in Variety, and that's what I had to read. Um, there was a review in the Times Educational Supplement that uh, criticised the, um, the, the way that it played fast and loose with the science and compared it unfavourably to the American show Numbers, you know, produced by the Scott brothers. And that, again, I mean, both of those rankled because neither of those was my responsibility. I was the one who tried to you know, introduce the, uh, the accuracy into the whole thing. And I wrote it off as just one of those experiences. And then 18 months, two years later, I got a, an email from Shafali, Shafali Malutra, again, the development producer who'd been kind of taken off the show at the early stages and replaced by somebody more experienced. Uh, and she said, congratulations on the American sale. And my, my response was, what American sale is this? Turned out that um, Jerry Bruckheimer had bought the format for an American remake and was going ahead and was doing it for CBS as... It was going to play in the slot straight after CSI. It was going to be a CSI-style procedural, but very, very science-based. They were using my scripts, they were using my stories, and um, we subsequently found out they wanted to use me in the production as well, but because they'd, um, they'd kind of played a little bit hard to get, in the meantime, I was offered to take over Crusoe for NBC as showrunner, which is another story altogether. Um, and so I wasn't available for... The setting up of 11th hour but as soon as I came off Crusoe I was on a plane over to LA I did two episodes at the end of the season and also I would have been quite closely involved in season two had we had a season two but there was some weird thing where CBS were not the owners of the show Warner Brothers were the owners of the show and CBS were only licensing it from them and for the next season CBS took in medium which they'd which CBS Studios made for another network ABC I think it was, or was it NBC? Anyway, CBS kind of took in Medium and so made double profit out of that and dropped 11th Hour from which they only made licensing profit. So, you know, one has to be philosophical about, you know, when business tides override artistic considerations. But on the other hand, I loved American 11th Hour. Rufus Sewell and Marley Shelton took the... um, the, uh, the the two lead roles as uh, as Doc, well Professor Hood as he became in uh, no he was Professor Hood in Britain he was Doctor Hood in America and uh, and and his his bodyguard so there were my Quatermass and there were my M appeal and I got to write episodes 16 and 18 18 was the season finale uh, which is my the proudest thing I think I've, I've you know the, the thing of which I'm proudest of anything that I've written for TV. You know, it's it's, it's a, a piece of work that I really love. And it's the one that turned out exactly as I would have wanted it to turn out. This is such a different story, of course, from the one we expect, is that we mm. expect a British writer to go to America and have a terrible time because the Americans, the way the Americans do things. So are we in danger, because you're working, you've got stuff going on in America, are we in danger of losing a, a British talent to America and why why can't why can't you be doing this on British television? Well listen I will I will I will go wherever I'm wanted. You know and I've learned that's the secret of life. You know, do what you're good at, 
go wherever you wanted. And it seems I am wanted more in Hollywood than I am in Britain. I can get, I can get a meeting anywhere in any, uh, in any network or any cable company in Hollywood. Um, I can't remember the last British TV meeting I had with, with a broadcaster. I think it was with the BBC on a show for an American producer that, um, that didn't get picked up. You know, they got no further than the meeting. And since then, I mean, I did, um, I did Silent Witness two years ago, which was, um, I did it because Sharon Bloom, the, uh, the producer, was someone with whom I'd developed stuff years back. Um, we'd never actually got it made. And, um, and she got in touch with me and um, said, I'm, I'm producing Silent Witness now. Have you got anything? You know, we're having trouble really sourcing good stories. And what I actually did was I offered them one of my unused season two 11th hour stories and made that. And it was, it was a thinly disguised Quatermass tale, you know. And, I, you know, as we were discussing before we began this recording, I stole a lot without even realising it from Quatermass 2 for that silent witness. But that went on to win um, a European science drama prize, best drama for, uh, for all of Europe. For, for science-based dramas. And I went out to Portugal, collected the award on behalf of the BBC, um, had a great time, you know, pinned the, pinned the certificate on my wall and the, the, the award is now in a BBC cupboard somewhere. And you would think, you know, you'd get a phone call after that saying, is there anything else you want to do? No, not a thing, no. I was, I mean, I was offered a, cha- a chance to pitch another silent witness for the next season. Um, but other than that, no, so you know that's that's how that kind of makes me think. Well, that's how I'm regarded in Britain. You know, I'm I'm not I'm not a hot property. Whereas in the states, and the weird thing is, you know, I'm not a young guy. And when I first went over there, I went over there to work as a co-executive producer on another Brookheimer show called The Forgotten, which never made it over here. Um, and. I moved into an apartment I'd rented there and the first thing waiting for me was a piece of mail from the Writers Guild of America, a survey saying, do you feel that you've been the victim of ageism? Well, when I went over, I think I was 55 and I'd just been discovered by Hollywood, (laughs) so to speak. And, you know, I'd had... um, They'd flown me over first class and laid on a limo from the airport, which I'd actually missed because I was so used to turning up and renting my own car that I had my own rental car waiting. Walked straight past the limo without knowing it and got in my rented Hyundai and and drove off to to the studio. And I thought, well, no, you know... And and what I realised about Hollywood is if you've got something they want, then you're in. It doesn't matter what race you are, it doesn't matter what gender you are, it doesn't matter what age you are. Um, and as long as you know, I can offer them something they want then I'm, and I, I, I kind of accept the fact that the moment I haven't got anything they want or if what I, I offer is not what they want then silence you know, radio, and that's the way it's Darwinian you know, it's like turtles crawling up the beach the great thing about it is if you get killed halfway up the beach you immediately get another life and can start all over again whereas in Britain if you have a flop show then everybody avoids you from that point onwards. I mean, there was that thing that... Uh, I forget the, the title of it. It was that thing that Kudos did, a science fiction show. It didn't do well. And, and, in fact, it did the opposite of well. Which meant that from that point onwards, no-one in British television wanted to touch science fiction of any kind from any writer on any subject again because that one 
piece of work had poisoned it. And I remember uh, I had a meeting with Stephen Garrett of Kudos while he was uh, he was still sort of managing there before he stepped down. And he said, well, we had this thing last year, and he said, and it's, it's more or less, it's made it difficult to get anything similar off the ground. And yet, you know, what happens in the States is that if something fails, they say, well, you got that far, you're a good bet for getting a bit further next time. Right. Well, there's been actors from Old Doctor who've been in New Doctor Who. There's been directors who've directed Old Doctor Who and New Doctor Who. You, you must surely be as close as anybody to be the writer that wrote for Old Doctor Who that could write for New Doctor Who, or is that not something that uh, you would be interested in? Are you, are you for new pastures? Do you like the new show? I, I do like the new show. I think Capaldi's great. Um, I thought Matt Smith was great. I thought Matt Smith was going to be rubbish. And then I saw him, and I thought, my God, you know, I have obviously no judgment whatsoever because this guy is wonderful. And then when Capaldi was announced, I thought, oh, yeah, couldn't be better because Capaldi has been on my wish list for various shows over the years um, and has never kind of, for one reason or another, you know, either he was busy elsewhere or the producers had other ideas, has never made it to the final, final selection. But I would have been really, really happy to have Capaldi in any of my stuff from, uh, from 1990 onwards. And, um, no, I mean, the only thing, the, the thing that stops me from pitching for it is that it's a bloody long walk back to your seat if the answer is no, <laughs> <laughs> having done, you know, the old vintage Doctor Who. So if there was ever a conversation where it kind of came about, then I would be open to it, but I'm not going to go out there and seek it because it would be embarrassing not to be able to, to pull it off in the end you know, and, and to find that maybe you're not as revered as you thought you were. <laughs> well, for, for somebody that, that can get a seat at Hollywood tables who... Um, has been so sort of keen and very generous in facilitating this interview. Um, I'm very grateful, and especially as it's been, we've I've far exceeded my time. So I will ask you the last two questions, which are a charity benefits from 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 this. So what's your charity? Please? There is a charity called Dogs for the Disabled, which um, which trains service dogs not only for the blind but also for um, for autistic children and um, and you know disabled people in any way who need dogs as service and the thing is dogs do a terrific job for the disabled and this is a way of kind of indulging two things in a way you know it's 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 right to do for the disabled but I'm, I'm quite keen on dogs as well and this way I can kind of hit both even after the garm you're very keen on dogs <laughs> and uh, this was convened originally this podcast to um, celebrate 50 years of Doctor Who um, and I know you've done so much outside of that program but what is your message to the Doctor Who fans? My message to the Doctor Who fans is to be open to everything that's new because the whole point of Doctor Who when it made its first big splash is there was nothing like it out there and wanting Doctor Who to be like it used to be is probably the, um, the least creative thing that you can, you can wish for it so be wide open to anything that it can do Well uh, so you were Steve, and you're now Steve. And when did that? Was that a conscious change? Yeah, it was a conscious change when I realised that the uh, the Steve on the on the front of the books. I mean, you know, when you go on a film set, all the um, all the guy, all, all the riggers and all the the electricians and everything are all these all seem to be these Cockney blokes. They're all called you know Mike and Steve and everything else. And I I always thought it's a leather jacket kind of name, Steve. And I want to be a little bit more distinguished than that because I'm, you know, I'm going into literature now. So for the point, from the point of view of the books, I became Stephen, uh, and I stuck with that. I think, I can't remember when the last Steve was. I was Steve on the, uh, the radio stuff in the early days, and I think I became Stephen for Chimera, which was my first 
kind of big published book and I've been Stephen ever since but for the purposes of this podcast for the purposes of emails twitter and everything else I'm still Steve well in that case I would just like to say John Lidecker <laughs> thank you very much thank you <laughs> brilliant that was great I hope that was okay that we, we didn't do too long for you there because I was Well, thanks to Stephen. Uh, his charity, Dogs for the Disabled, has, since that was recorded, undergone a name change. They are now called Dogs for Good. You can find them at www.dogsforgood, all one word, dot org. Dogs for Good, all one word, dot org. And as you heard in there, Stephen is on Twitter at Brooligan, B-R-O-O-L-I-G-A-N, at Brooligan. Follow him. Uh, he's got lots of insight and lots of fun uh, I'm on Twitter at Toby Haydoke at T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E I can promise neither insight nor fun but occasionally bits of trivia about Doctor Who actors so you know and plugs for my run my 10k run on May the 22nd I have a virgin giving dot page uh, page google Toby Haydoke virgin giving and uh, uh, and if you want to give me a pound if ever one of you listening gives me a pound I might uh, I might raise some money for the Psoriasis Association, which would be lovely. Cheers. Bye-bye. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Doctor Who, The Fourth Doctor Adventures, The Gallery of Ghouls. Ah, 1833. G-O-O-L-E and his gallery of G-H-O-U-L-S. Ghouls Gallery of Ghouls. Clever. Madame Tissot's wax exposition at the New Town Hall all week till 10pm. The owner of another waxworks? It's gone. The head is gone. Stolen. The doctor. Seize him. Hold him. Please, ladies and gentlemen, I've stolen nothing, let alone the head of Marie Antoinette. Summon a constable. A crime has been committed. Unlike your entirely sensitive recreations of the bloodiest episodes in history. There is a rival exposition in town, newly arrived for a short season. Who is it? Madame Tissot. I admit, I am curious to see what it is all about this good gallery that so distracts from my own exposition. But it's not safe for you. Down here, Madame Tissot. Down into the cellar of terror. The cellar of... That's what the sign says anyway. There's someone behind you. What? Big finish. We love stories.